Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians again in chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 17. And we'll make our way down through verse 5 of chapter 3, but during the time that we read together, I'm going to read all the way to verse 13, since it all sort of hangs together and you're getting part one this week, if you will. Now, let's situate ourselves, and you'll remember that Paul has been heaping up a torrent of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. I mean, he has been gushing over this church from the very beginning of the book. He's saying, I always, we always, Silas, Timothy, and myself, give thanks to God for you. We mention you in all of our prayers, remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves, as he's giving thanks for them, to assuring them that they have been loved and chosen by God. He says in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. He then goes on to give thanks for them, for how the word was preached among them, how it was received by them, and how it rings out from them. And then he moves on as he's giving thanks to sort of reminisce in those first 16 verses of chapter 2. He's letting the Thessalonians know that his labor among them was not in vain. You see the word in vain there in verse 1 of chapter 2. And so he's, he's proving that his ministry wasn't in vain as he gives thanks for them. And the first reason he gives that his ministry wasn't in vain is that his ministry wasn't motivated by a desire to please them, but by a desire to please God. And therefore, because he and Silas and Timothy carried out their ministry faithfully, it was pleasing to God. It was a success. It wasn't in vain. Then in verses 13 through 16, he gets to his second reason why his ministry was not in vain. And it's because the Thessalonians received the word, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. We watched Paul rejoice last week that they received the word of God and that the word of God was at work in the Thessalonians. And now this week, he sort of shifts from remembering his time among the Thessalonians to thinking about that time that he spent apart from them and he had no news about how their faith was doing. You'll see there in verse 5 of chapter 3 again, he's concerned that his labor would have been in vain. So we sort of have a confession of Paul this week that he was worried about the faith of these Thessalonians. He was concerned that they might be like that rocky soil, if you remember the parable of the soils. They receive the word with much joy right away, but they have no roots. Persecution comes, and their faith is revealed or what it is, withering, temporary, counterfeit. This is Paul's concern that he is remembering, he's confessing to them. Now, Timothy brings back good news that the Thessalonians have indeed stood fast, and there's much rejoicing, and we're going to get to Paul's celebrating that fact next week. But, but what I want to do this week is look a little bit at Paul's confession. And what we see from chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 5, is a figure hidden beneath the text. There is a snake slithering there. And it is to the evil one we will turn our attention this morning. Main idea is this. Do not be shaken by suffering, or by Satan. Deal with the devil. We're going to hang our hats on really just four words or four ways that the devil tries to tempt us away from Christ. First word, if you're a note taker, isolation. Second, ignorance. Third, persecution. 
And fourth, prosperity. That's sort of your outline. Those of you that are interested in that, you can find a manuscript somewhere after service. With that said, would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's holy word? First Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown? What is our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that the battle between yourself, your people, and Satan has never been uncertain. We thank you that that battle will end in your victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and we contend with a vanquished foe, who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. Therefore, we ask that when we feel the serpent at our heels, that we might remember Christ, whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. Indeed, we ask that you would give us delight and joy as we exalt our mighty conqueror. We ask that you would heal us of any wounds received in this great conflict. We ask that if we have gathered any defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, If our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies our hearts, if our souls are sinking under the pressure of the fight, that you would lift us up again, that you would make us well as you make all things well. Draw near to us, your weary warriors. Refresh us that we may rise again to wage the good warfare. We ask that you would never let us tire until the enemy is trodden down beneath our feet. Give us such a fellowship with you that we may defy Satan, defy unbelief, defy the flesh, defy the world with all the delight that comes not from a creature, 
but from you. Give us a drink of your eternal fountain of love so that we will never weaken, that our hands will never shake, our feet never stumble, our sword never rest, our shield never rust, our helmet never shatter, our breastplate never fall. Pray that we would rest all our strength in the power of the might of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians like a concerned mother. He's concerned about their well-being, and so he sends Timothy to instruct them like a father and to gather news about how they're doing. And the news that comes back to him, we know as we read this book, was good news. The Thessalonians are standing fast in the faith. They're growing in the faith. The persecution of the evil one has not caused them to wither. No, they have continued to trust Christ. But in the midst of all of that, before Paul knew, he gives us a description of his experience. And in that description, we get a picture of how Satan was working in Paul's life and in the life of the Thessalonians. Look with me at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, literally here it's in face, torn away from you in face, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. This is incredibly strong language that Paul uses to talk about being separated from the Thessalonians. The word here for torn away from you, if you translate it literally, it's we were orphaned from you. It's a word that's used to talk about the separation that takes place between parents and their children. Paul says, we, we were like orphans when we were taken away from you. And so I was, I was sort of asking, like, well, why was Paul orphaned from among the Thessalonians? And if you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the context for our passage comes from Acts chapter 17. Remember, Paul goes into Thessalonica for about three weeks and he preaches the gospel in the synagogue week after week. And some believe there's great fruit there. But others become jealous. In fact, some of those Jews who are jealous of Paul gather up a mob of what the Bible calls wicked men. And they stir up the whole city against Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they can't find them, and so they take one of the brothers there, Jason, and they, they haul him before the magistrate. And they say, he's with these men who have been turning the world upside down. They've been turning the world upside down with this message of Jesus crucified and raised. And now they've brought the message here, and it's upsetting everything. It's a problem. Jason pays the bond is released. And when he gets back to the Christians there in Thessalonica, they decide that they have to get Paul and Timothy and Silas out of town. And so under the cover of night, our missionary team is sent to Berea. They are orphaned from the Thessalonians, the young church. And they have wanted to go back time and again Paul says himself, he switches from we to I. He really wants to be I, Paul, again and again, but Satan has hindered us. Brothers and sisters, Satan loves to make orphans of Christians. He loves to orphan us from one another. word earlier was isolation. The evil one works hard to separate Christian brothers and sisters from one another. He loves it when Christians believe they can faithfully follow Jesus by themselves. Brothers and sisters, do not orphan yourself. That is is a temptation that comes from the evil one. 
Join yourself to a local church in meaningful membership. One of the best lies the devil has told is that you can be a faithful follower of Jesus without any authority in your life, without any accountability in your life, without any skin in the game, or any connection to any real body of other believers. You can just do your own Christian thing and belong to the the universal church and do Christianity all by yourself. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you belong to Christ, you ought to belong to a local body of Christ where you are connected with real believers. Satan is the one who would have you cut off from other Christians. Satan is the one who would have you cut off from the body of Christ. He loves to orphan Christians. They're so much easier to lead astray that way. Do you know, this is why I I don't usually go away from the manuscript. This illustration might not work, just fair warning. Uh, Do y'all know zebras? Do you ever wonder why they're all colored like that? I think this is true. It might not be true, but if it works for illustration, we're just going to adopt it. Uh, Zebras have that, that pattern. It's cool. They're black and white, and they all stand together. And what I read once upon a time, and for some reason is coming to my head right now, uh, is the reason that they're striped that way is when they all stand together, predators like lions just get super confused. And they're like, we just don't even know where one ends and the other one begins, and they don't attack them because they're all together with this crazy stripey pattern. Lions don't like stripes, I guess. But if they get a zebra alone, much easier to kill doesn't blend in, doesn't find the safety of the flock. Likewise, when when we are not around the people of God, sheep would have worked better here. A sheep that goes away from the rest of the flock is much easier to pick off and to kill than one who is with the flock and is being protected by the shepherd. The evil one loves to orphan Christians. And he will make all sorts of excuses for you to not commit yourself to real Christians in a real church. C.S. Lewis understood this more than most. He has this wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters, and it's sort of dark, but maybe appropriate this time of year, I don't know. Uh, In that book, there is a senior demon by the name of Screwtape, and he writes to a junior demon named Wormwood. Really great names. And Screwtape wants to write to Wormwood to help him lead his subject, who has become a Christian, away from Christ. And in the early chapters of the book, one of the first things that Screwtape ought to, or wants Wormwood to do is to lead his subject away from the church. Listen to this portion from the Screwtape letters. This is good old Uncle Screwtape writing to Wormwood. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans All your patient sees is the half-finished, sham, gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer, with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands. In our day, we might say a bulletin. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbor's whom he has, to this point, avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak 
or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christian in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. You must keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? Lewis's words are striking, not just because of his skill with a pen, but because of their truth. How the evil one will cause us to look for any and every excuse to orphan ourselves from the body of Christ. So church, the application to you is, do not orphan yourself. Challenge those friends in your life who claim to follow Jesus but don't belong to a local church to join a local church. And commit yourself to staying connected to a local church. Some of us have this weird idea that if we join a church and we're in fellowship with other believers that nothing bad should ever happen to us. That no trial should ever come. But that's really silly. I mean, have you ever thought about your experience in your own family? You love your family. You, you would die for your family. But there are some days... You know, things are a little tough. The church is the same. We are going to butt heads and make mistakes and sin against each other because we're sinners. What we must resolve to do is to treat one another as Christ has treated us. To love steadfastly. To forgive resolutely. To stay loyal to one another. Commit to a church and stay connected to it, church. My friend who is here with us that doesn't belong to a church, I'm glad you're here. Keep coming. We want you here. But you really must consider the testimony of the New Testament about the importance of a local church. Lonely Christians are easy for the evil one to destroy. Do not let him hinder you from fellowship with other believers. You know, maybe I've gotten ahead of myself a little bit. Maybe we should have started elsewhere. Is it, do, do you believe in the devil? It almost can sound silly in our modern world. I mean, even among Christians, many of us are functional materialists, and the preacher gets up and starts talking about the devil, you know? Is that real? Do you really believe in the devil? I think one of his greatest successes is convincing us that he doesn't exist. The devil likes to convince people of, of two things primarily. One, that he doesn't exist, and the other is that he's not all that dangerous, he likes to dress himself in the drag of an angel of light so that he might be more successful in destroying the faith of those who profess Christ. The devil is real. Paul treats him as such in this passage and in many others. You all studied through Ephesians not too long ago. And in the last chapter of that book, what is Paul calling us to do but to outfit ourselves in the divine armor, to be strong in the Lord, to put on the helmet of salvation, to take up the shield of faith, and to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And friends, I just wonder if you actually believe you need those things. Do you believe that you are at war? Yes, Yes, the devil is defeated. The blood and the bone of that great dragon are on the heel of our Savior. 
but the dragon still breathes fire. He still looses arrows of flame at God's people. He still schemes and he still seeks to destroy you. Are you aware? Are you awake to that reality? That Satan is doing all that he can to destroy you, to hinder you, just like he hindered Paul here. Friend, do not be blind to the reality of the war going on around you. The devil hinders Paul from staying in Thessalonica. And it hinders him from, he hinders him from returning. Do, do notice back there in verse 16 when Paul is detailing how their opposition opposed not only them but all mankind. That part of what they did was they, they hindered or prevented them from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. Verse 16. And then here you have the same idea, verse 18. That Satan hindered them. The devil is at work here. Was at work in Paul's life. And he, Paul knows it, but he can't change it. He can, just, he can just fight and pray. I mean, look how much he loves this people. He, he doesn't want to be apart from them. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul loved this people. He wants to be with them. He doesn't want to be isolated from them. He doesn't want to be orphaned from them. He wanted to stay with them and continue teaching them. He even has this, these lines here in verse 19 where he basically says the Thessalonians are his joy and his crown of boasting before the Lord. That strikes us as a little odd. People don't talk that way anymore, do they? But, but maybe to understand this, we can travel back in time together to that, those, those years, long years ago, before cell phones existed. And this is going to be hard for some of you here. Uh, before cell phones, people used to carry these things called pictures. I know you think of a different thing now when you think of pictures. You just think of images on your phone. But there were hard copies of pictures, like you have on your phone. And people would carry them with them. Uh, women would carry them in their purses. And men would take, the, they would have wallets. It's another discussion. But they would have wallets, and in, in the billfold there, they would, it's like a thing you carried your money in, but, but you'd open up in the billfold there where you put your cash, guys would put pictures of their family, their wives and their kids. And what they would do is every once in a while when they were feeling especially sentimental, they'd pull that picture out and they'd look at it and they'd just remember fondly their family. But more often than not, what would happen with those pictures is they would take it out when they were in discussion with somebody and somebody would ask them about their family and about their life. And they would show off their family to whoever asked. Oh, there's, you know, little Timmy. He's my pride and joy. There's my wife. She's my crown and my glory. Look what Paul is saying here. He's like, Thessalonians, all y'all are my wallet picture. Like when the Lord Jesus returns and we're in the new heavens and new earth, I'm going to show him my, in my wallet uh, the picture of all y'all because I'm so proud of what he has done in my ministry here in Thessalonica. It, you all are proof of God's goodness to me and his power through my ministry. I mean, Paul loves this church. And yet he's far away. They even see... I love this in verse 1 and in verse 5. He says, we can't bear it any longer, right? And then verse 5 again, when I could bear it no longer, he has no news from them. You know, what, what, can he, what can't he bear? Remember, chased off in the cover of night. They're separated from the Thessalonians. No cell phones. And really no way for news to travel quickly. Paul doesn't know what has happened to this church. And he's in knots about it. We're so connected now, it's hard to think about what it would be like 
to be separated by a great distance from someone we loved and have no news about their condition. Maybe you can think back to wars of a hundred years ago, you know, women sending their husbands off to war and then waiting for any piece of news to come to them. How are they doing? Have they made it through the latest battle? Are they well? Or maybe if you're parents of teenagers, you've had the experience, they go out, they're supposed to be home at midnight, and the cell phone is dead, they forgot to charge it, and it's 1245, and they haven't come home yet, and so you're you're going to pick up your phone, you're going to put an APB out on them, figure out where they are, you've got the anxiety going, and then they walk in the door, and you're like, I am going to kill you. Was filled with, with worry and concern. That's what Paul is concerned about them. Verse 5, I wanted, he wanted to learn about their faith. Why? For fear that somehow the tempter, that's Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He wants to know how they're doing in the faith. He's concerned. And so, he sends Timothy so that he can learn how they are, and look in verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Timothy is there to instruct them in the faith and to encourage them to continue following the word of God. Paul is aware of the, the second thing we talked about. Satan's desire to make Christians ignorant. Satan does not want us to have good teaching. Why does Timothy teach, right? He's going to establish and exhort you in your faith. Why? Verse 3, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul understands when he sends Timothy that the Thessalonians are vulnerable to the devil's attacks primarily through persecution because he doesn't think they've had enough teaching. He doesn't think that they are ready to take up the armor of God and to stand fast against the evil one. He's concerned that they are going to be tempted away from belief in Christ by persecution. And so he sends Timothy to teach, to exhort them in the faith, to establish them in the faith. He does not want them to be shaken. does not want them to be ignorant about the reality of suffering in the lives of Christians. Friends, the devil hates biblical instruction. He hates it when God's word is faithfully preached. Because the devil knows what we talked about last week, that when God's word is faithfully taught, we hear not the voice of a mere man, but the voice of God. The devil knows that God's word makes God's people. And so, if he can't keep you isolated from a church, he will be more than happy to keep you ignorant, or to put you in a church where God's word is not preached. He will happily build up church after church on anything other than the word of God. The devil is happy for churches that thrive because of their great entertainment value, as long as they don't have the word. He's happy for great and beautiful buildings to be built and to be filled with people who proclaim the name of Christ but have no idea who he is because they have no doctrine. The devil understands it is doctrine and teaching that empower devotion. What enables us to follow Jesus is his Holy Spirit working through his word in us. It's knowing who God is and how he has ordered his world. The devil's happy when God's people are kept ignorant, when they don't want to study his word, when they don't want to hear it preached. 
He's happy to try and cut off any avenue we have to growing in the faith and learning what God has said. He's hindering Paul, but the Lord knows why he does not hinder Timothy. Paul sends Timothy to establish and exhort, to instruct them in the faith further, so that no one will be moved by these afflictions. They're being persecuted. We saw that earlier in the chapter. They're, they're, they're suffering. Notice this note, though, at the end of verse 3. Paul says, For you know, you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Because when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. This is Christianity 101 for the Thessalonians. They're only there for a few weeks, maybe a little bit longer. But we read here that Paul and Timothy and Silas kept telling them beforehand that they would suffer affliction. That they were, because they followed Jesus, destined for persecution. It's a good reminder to us, isn't it, church? That we follow a crucified Messiah who was destined to suffer and die. Jesus Christ came according to the definite plan of God so that he could purchase salvation for all who repent of sin and put their faith in him. Jesus came so that he might suffer and bleed and die. So that God-hating rebels like you and me, who were dead in our sins, could be brought to life and saved from the wrath of God that our sins have earned. He was destined for it. We enjoy, we take hold of eternal life when we turn from our sins and take hold of the cross. What's Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. That is not a call to comfort. That is not a promise that everything is going to go really, really well for you in life. It is a call to suffer. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know you can have eternal life. You can have relationship with God. You can be part of the family of God. There are blessings for you and 10,000 beside. It's good news that you don't have to suffer an eternity under God's wrath if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ. It's good news for you if, if, you will take up your cross and follow Jesus. If you will submit your life to him. I implore you to do that today. Talk to somebody about it. Talk to me. Church, in case you've forgotten, you will suffer. You will be persecuted. Socially, for sure, and one day maybe physically. You need to be prepared. Resolve now that when suffering comes, you will stand fast, and that you will not waver. Three weeks in, and this church in Thessalonica, catechized and suffering, being persecuted. It's the exact opposite of what I call world-centered churches that hold out promises of health, wealth, and prosperity if you have enough faith. I want to be clear. Prosperity is a good thing. 
It is not a problem. The problem is not that prosperity is a bad thing, right? Like we should all pursue as little prosperity and as little well-being as possible. It's not, it's not what I'm saying. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that it values prosperity as the highest good rather than Jesus. A church that makes Jesus Christ a means to an end blasphemes and is in the grip of the devil. True Christianity is about the worship of Jesus Christ. And so don't don't mishear me. I want to say that you should give thanks to God for his good gifts. It is a good thing to pursue excellence. It is good to try and live a life of peace and quiet in honor to the Lord. It's good to provide for your family. It's good to thank God for health. Prosperity is a good thing. And if it comes, it comes from the hand of our Heavenly Father, and we ought to give Him praise and thanks. It is a good thing, but it is not the goal of Christianity. Jesus may give us prosperity, yes, and for us in this room, He has been very, very good to us. He may give us prosperity, but it is never promised. Persecution is promised. All who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are promised suffering now and glory later. We need to know this. We need to know this because the tempter is still tempting. He does it in two ways. Paul's primary concern here is through through persecution. Right? This is becoming more and more in our modern world. We're tempted to abandon Christ so that we can fit in with the culture. We're tempted to be blown over by the strong winds of the sexual revolution, indulge our flesh. Like, not only do we get to indulge our flesh, do whatever we want with our bodies, but also we will fit in with the world. We can be one of the cool kids, part of the in crowd. We can be safe and secure. See, I want to hold these two things together. We're going to get to prosperity in a second, but I want to hold prosperity and persecution together because they both play on the same desire. We desire to be comfortable and secure. And on the one hand, persecution, it it drives us away from Jesus because it'll be more comfortable right now to not be slandered. And prosperity does it in a different way. It says you have comfort and security right now. You don't really need to press into Jesus. You see? The devil will use two two things that seem like like polar opposites. And we use them both to tempt us away from trusting in Christ. So maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're in a situation where you have begun being persecuted for your faith, slandered, put out socially. I want to encourage you, don't fit in with this strange new world. Keep your eyes on the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. Cling to Christ. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be socially ostracized. He knows what it is to be insulted. Endure in following him. He's worth it. But I have a sneaky suspicion that the devil has found more success in tempting the likes of us toward prosperity. To the extent that I think if I say, We really, as a church, need to heed Paul's words to the rich. Some of you would go, that's not me, right away. But I I want to tell you, it is you. If you live in the United States of America, in our modern world, you have greater wealth than some of the great kings of the past. 
You are the richest human beings who have ever walked the planet. And therefore, you ought to be extra sensitive to all the warnings that come to the rich throughout Scripture. We ought to be aware of how the devil can use our prosperity to draw us away from Jesus. Are you aware? It might be overdone, but you can just check your heart by asking, you know, follow the money. Follow the money. What do you give to? What is your wealth invested in? Paul would help us fight the temptation to trust in wealth for security and satisfaction rather than Jesus by giving. Listen to his instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The gifts are from God. Enjoy them. Keep your hopes on Christ, not on riches. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Are you generous? Are you giving to the work of God in our church? Are you giving to the work of God in the world? Or has the devil ever so slightly convinced you you couldn't possibly give to those things because you would be a little bit more insecure, a little uncomfortable. Has he convinced you that your hope and your stay is in your wealth? It's interesting. Persecution can shake the faith. It's in verse 3. He doesn't want anybody shaken by the affliction. He doesn't want anybody moved by these afflictions. But I, I want to say, he also doesn't want to see, I don't want to see you shaken and moved by your affluence. The devil is very, very wise. He is very skilled. And he is out to destroy you. He wants to orphan you from the church. If he can't orphan you from the church, he would like to keep you ignorant of God's word. He would like to tempt you away from trusting in Christ by way of persecution. He would like to tempt you away from trusting in Christ by way of prosperity. Therefore, you must fight. You must make war. Are you at war this morning? Or have you become comfortable? Fight the evil one. Take up the shield and catch his darts. Take up the sword of the Spirit in your hand and fight back. Stand fast and do not be shaken by suffering or by Satan. Deal with the devil with the word of God and with a song in your mouth. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Yes, we who follow the way of the cross are destined to suffer, Paul tells us in 3.2. But we will not be moved by our afflictions 
because we are those who have taken hold of Christ and of eternal life. We are not destined only for suffering. We're destined also for glory. We'll close with this. Paul says here, we were destined for this, referring to sufferings. And then in chapter 5, towards the end of the book, in verse 8, read what he says. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Brothers and sisters, you may suffer, but whether you live or whether you die, you will be alive with Christ. And you are promised that one day when Christ returns, you will share in his reign. You will enjoy a resurrection body, and all will be well. Suffering will be swallowed up by glory. So be encouraged. You can deal with the devil. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you to give us eyes to see the glory of Christ, crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. We need you to give us your Holy Spirit, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we might hear your word and have it at work in us. We need your spirit that we might love. God, you are our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of need. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Because we know there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, your holy habitation. And you are in the midst of that city that is to come. And you shall not be moved. That city shall not be moved. We know, God, that you help your people. Your mercies are new each morning. Lord, the nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But you utter your voice and the earth melts. You, the Lord of armies, is with us. You are our mighty fortress. Help us to look at your works. And remember that you make wars to cease. That you break the bow and shatter the spear and burn the chariots with fire. Make us still before you once more this morning that we might know that you are God and give you the glory that you are worthy of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.